0: Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we took a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California.
1: And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We
0: discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable
1: discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue.
0: Today is Sunday, February 14th, 2021.
1: 2021. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's
0: Day. Day, everyone. Hope you were able to celebrate joy in whichever form it comes to
1: you yeah and today we are talking about trump's seventh impeachment trial
0: (laughs) my god it feels like we've been in an impeachment trial for the last two years
1: i will say the lack of trump being in the impeachment trial makes it a little more bearable than if it was you know he was on i don't know on stage the entire time he wasn't
0: on last time he doesn't like being actually
1: on trial yeah who does true so today we'll be talking about some of that verdict from the impeachment trial trump was acquitted although the majority of senators including a record historic history breaking amount of members of the president's own party voted against him that trial is now over we'll be talking about that we'll also be talking about the impeachment trial other trials who knows (laughs) we'll also be talking about the coronavirus And I don't know what you have else to talk about. That's kind of my main thing. (laughs) I only had two shows I covered. Which shows were those? I covered Face the Nation and I covered State of the Union.
0: Yeah. So I looked at this week. Blah. I have thoughts about that. And then I also covered Meet the Press and Fox News Sunday. And what I plan on talking about is a little bit of the coronavirus, but really looking at the Republican Party overall.
1: All right. Well, let's begin as we always begin with quality questionable. So let's begin with something that was questionable in your eyes today on the three shows you covered.
0: My questionable, and this is, let's be real, this is a low light. I'm pretty sure I've had before. And it's questioning the usefulness of Chris Wallace's closing segment, Power Player of the Week. Now, yes, there have been some cute segments with the hat lady and Ben Folds.
1: It's been a long time since there's been a really cute moment.
0: Oh, there was like the science, the girl scientist or the teen scientist. Yeah, I kind of like that. I can't remember what happened that week. It was something like monumental and it felt a little out of place.
1: It was the January 6th riot is what happened (laughs) that week. Oh, right, right.
0: See, exactly. Anyway, I know I've mentioned this, but again... The Power Player of the Week made no sense to me. And then, and let me back up. Before I kind of explain why I thought this one was a joke, Chris Wallace is a serious person. He seems like kind of a serious guy. He only has a weekly show, and he allocates like 15% of his show to this segment. It literally leaves your brain while you're listening to it. It's not even over in your, it's gone in your memory. And today the segment that I was like, why, why is this getting into my brain to then just disappear was an interview that he had with James Patterson.
1: Noted author of many thrillers.
0: Yeah. So apparently he has a new nonfiction book coming out, but listen to a couple clips from today's segment just to demonstrate how unuseful this is to your life.
2: He is the best selling author of the past decade. And if you think I'm talking about Stephen King or John Grisham, think again. Here's our power player of the week. I love to tell stories and I wanna know what's gonna happen at the end. Author James Patterson tells lots of stories. 314 books, 241 bestsellers, over 400 million copies sold. Loyal fans buy so many, their hashtag is Patter Stack. But his latest book, Walk in My Combat Boots, written with retired Army Sergeant Matt Eversman, is a nonfiction page turner.
3: These are the people on the
2: ground. This is their stories. Why was that important to tell, and particularly why to tell now?
3: If you've been in the military, if you've been in combat, that you'd say, these, pe- these guys got it right. And if you haven't, you'll understand, maybe for the first time in your life, what it means to serve, what it means to put your life on the line for somebody else.
2: His favorite story is about twins, Jason and Kevin Draughty, who both served as Army Rangers in Iraq.
3: One of them would go through a a hair-raising experience, and and all he would think about is, I hope my twin is okay. And Jason would always say over and over again, Kevin and I are going to go home. Uh, we're going to get home, and they did get home. Patterson runs his own storytelling army. I have some co-writers. What I do is I will write a 50 or 60 page outline for everything. There was one year, two years ago, where I had I wrote, uh, I think it was 2,700 pages of outlines, which is crazy. Do you ever get writer's block? No. No, I, what is that? I've heard about that, but I don't, no, obviously not. Some of my competitors wish that I would get writer's block. No writer's block, but he
2: still finds mystery in the process.
1: You know what this reminds me of? It just occurred to me. It is a people, a, a fluff piece from People Magazine
0: on the Sunday Morning News Show, because that's what it reminds me.
1: It is Chris Wallace's morning show. You know how George hosts Good Morning America? This is Chris Wallace's chance to be that person.
0: It is not Tuesday morning, it's Sunday morning. Yeah. Okay, I I wanted to include this kind of one part of this interview where they actually talk about this nonfiction book because even in how they talk about it, they don't really talk about it. They just say that it's a show or it's a book about service members. It's not about which war. It doesn't look into, is it like the mental health? of these veterans? Is it their motivation for joining? Is it like the camaraderie between the service members? It's about
1: walking in the boots.
0: Right, like what part of it, is it like, once you're, like, during their service, is it once they come home? Is it, are you looking at a certain type of service member? Like
1: Does each chapter take up a different story? Right, like, like what, what at is no this point
0: book? do they, like, dive into this book and be like, these are the stories that I'm, you know, thrilled to share with the world and, and hope. And this is why it matters. Right. He literally says they were these twins and they, like, wanted to come home together and they did. That is your, like, heart-tugging example of your book? About service members? Like, really? And then they, he go. and this is just like one little snippet of James Patterson talking about his, like, book writing army, essentially. But it just, this is, none of this is necessary in my brain. Like, not one single piece. Stop wasting my time. Wow. And it just, you could use that time for so many things. Okay, I can keep going. Yes. Brendan. Clear. <laughs> clearly. Tell me something not James Patterson related. Literally anything.
1: That's questionable?
0: Questionable, happy. It could literally be anything as long as James Patterson is not involved.
1: Okay, here we go. This is a very small thing, but... Is it like James Patterson's books, small things? It's even smaller. (laughs) Okay. But it's something I noticed and I don't know. I mean, you be the judge, audience, of what you think, if there's a connection here or not, but... I don't know. Just lately, I've been noticing how sometimes these Sunday shows will swipe other people's work or phrasing as their own and not credit them. And that really bothers me because it really wouldn't be hard to credit people for the work and the thoughts that they put out there publicly. So, this is a moment that came up in the interview that Jake Tapper was having on State of the Union. With Democratic Senator Chris Murphy. He's a senator from Connecticut. They were talking about the impeachment and the fact that there was this moment on Saturday this weekend when it seemed like out of nowhere the Senate was going to actually hear from witnesses in this impeachment trial. And then a few hours passed by and the impeachment managers from the House of Representatives who were prosecuting the case against Donald Trump suddenly dropped those requests for witnesses and the Senate moved on. So take a listen to this question that Jake Tapper asked.
4: It was the shortest presidential impeachment trial on record, less than a week from start to finish according to Politico. Your Senate colleague Chris Coons said, quote, "The jury is ready to vote, people want to get home for Valentine's Day." There was also some concern obviously that dragging this out might impact Biden's agenda, but the Senate's on recess this week. You're not working Uh, or voting, rather, on COVID relief. Uh, You're not confirming cabinet nominees. Do Democrats just want to get this over with as quickly as possible for political reasons?
2: No, I mean, this was certainly maybe the shortest trial, but also the simplest trial.
1: So you heard Jake Tapper's question there. I'm now going to read to you, with no further prompting, a tweet that kind of went viral, had like 20,000-something likes on Saturday when all this was going on. This is from... Huffington Post congressional reporter, Matt Fuller. Here is his tweet, quote, "'Just a reminder, the Senate isn't even in next week. They're not going to be working on COVID relief. They're not going to be confirming Biden's cabinet. They're going on vacation," end quote. When Jake Tapper noted, basically these exact series of facts in this exact order, I thought, wow, they probably saw this tweet and rather than say oh as noted by Huffington Post reporter Matt Fuller you know the senate isn't in next week and they're not going to be doing these things that they're saying and claiming are important reasons for shortening this trial but there is no credit given and i don't know if they saw this but it would be quite the quite the coincidence that they note this in the same order these same facts in a question like this to a senator now i appreciate that the question is being put to a senator because i shared that tweet with you naomi (laughs) and uh, another friend of ours as things were going on on saturday because i thought that was a noteworthy piece of information the last time we saw this it was this week basically stealing from the cover of new york magazine This time it's a tweet from a HuffPost congressional reporter, not nearly as big, but still, still important, right? I mean, this is a big, you know, we live in a big journalistic ecosystem and we really should be giving credit where credit is due to others, particularly when they don't work for your publication.
0: And little transparency is pretty easy. I think that's the other thing. It, like, it doesn't take a ton of work. No, exactly. Do you have a quality moment to kind of lighten this up?
1: <laughs> Not to lighten this up, but I do have a quality moment. <laughs> okay. It is the basically the last few moments of Face the Nation. This was Mark Strassman. We've heard from him before. He is CBS's senior national reporter. And they took a few moments to just bring to the Sunday morning audience some of the information and some of the visceral material that came out during the impeachment trial of Donald Trump about the insurrection that took place on January 6th. I thought this was important. It was a little odd that it was kind of the last few moments of the show, but partly I think that's because they just packed the show with tons of interviews, including one with the Prime Minister of the UK. Here's just a little bit of that report.
2: With Mark Strassman. We learned a lot this week about how appalling many moments were. Pro Trump rioters bludgeoned police, dragged them down flights of stairs. Looked like a medieval battle scene. At uh, one point, I got tased. People were yelling out, you know, we got one, we got one. More clear than ever, the mob of hunters almost got elected leaders. Man! Here you see Senator Mitt Romney abruptly reversing course away from rioters now inside the Capitol. With gallows set up outside, the Secret Service whisked away Vice President Mike Pence and his family. An aide carried what appeared to be one of the three
1: nuclear footballs. Rioters came within 100 feet of them. I just want to note there that At one point, we hear the voice of somebody say that they got tased and someone's and and hearing the rioters say, we got one, we got one. That was Officer Michael Fannin of the D.C. Metropolitan Police. So the we got one, we got one is we got a cop in this riot. So I thought this was important to bring this information to the audience. It's kind of that old school, you know, idea of the Sunday shows as you know, bringing forwards to the audience, like a summation of the important things that happened that week. And it was something that we didn't see on State of the Union. Now, of course, CNN, I'm sure, and we know has been doing wall-to-wall coverage, but a different group of people comes and tunes in to State of the Union. A different group of people come on Sunday morning looking for this, sorts of, this sort of information. So I thought it was important that Face the Nation did it. I don't know, Naomi, if you saw anything similar from the three shows you covered, but I was surprised that there wasn't more of it. Frankly,
0: yeah, now that I think back of it, most of the congressional summaries were post the acquittal. There wasn't as much coverage or anything from before that.
1: Yeah, see, and I think that's a pity. I think that's uh, one might say questionable. But, Naomi, let's hear something of quality. Let's wrap this section up.
0: My quality moment is a moment I heard on Meet the Press when Chuck Todd spoke with CDC director. Rochelle Walensky. She was on multiple shows, at least on my end.
1: She was on the two of mine as well that I covered. Yeah, so she
0: hit, she did almost the full round of shows. But there was a question that I, that she didn't have an answer for. And the reason it's a quality moment is because Chuck Todd brought the question up to begin with. Take a listen to this information gap, really, that we've been seeing the last couple of months.
5: We are getting close to, I think, about 15 to 20 million Americans this week will have gotten their second dose of the vaccine. What is the guidance for a vaccinated, fully vaccinated American? What is the travel guidance? What is the mask guidance? What is their work guidance?
6: really great question. I'm proud to say as of yesterday, we hit the 50 million vaccinations into arms uh, mark. Uh, so we are we are scaling up. Um, we don't have a lot of data yet to inform exactly the question that you're asking. We have issued guidance this week that um, suggests, that recommends that if you have been vaccinated and you are exposed and you're exposed within three months of your vaccination, that's similar to if you'd been exposed within three months of disease, that you need not cord- quarantine. As data emerge on many of the questions that you're asking, we will update our guidance in real time. So
0: we essentially hear in this section of the interview, Chuck Todd asking, what should vaccinated people do? What is safe? What isn't? Like, what is their next step?
1: And Yeah, extremely important. When ex- we're talking about millions and millions and millions of people who have gotten this vaccine now.
0: Right, there's 15 to 20 million. Due to the scaling of production, we're getting them more in arms. Like, it is a very reasonable question. CDC Director Walensky kind of gives a non-answer, essentially saying, like, we're looking into it, we're trying to answer them, and we don't really know right now. The new regulations say that if you've had exposure or potential exposure and you just were vaccinated in the last three months, you don't have to quarantine. That alone, I think, is a kind of a weird protocol that I think I don't even fully get. But she doesn't really have much of an answer for anything else. Right. And I found that really surprising. I'm I'm not I don't bring this up to say, like, Wolinsky doesn't know what she's talking about, but It is important to talk about what we're not hearing from, to ask questions about components of this virus or any story that is kind of underexplored, undertold, so that we as consumers, we as voters can say, hey, oh, this kind of seems important. Like, I hope they start prioritizing this, right? Maybe, Maybe that might be like the first appropriate reaction. But then in four to six weeks, when we have even millions of more Americans, and if this is the same answer, that is unacceptable. But nobody has been really asking the Biden administration these types of questions like, what can we expect? What is reasonable? What? And like, it's not like they weren't working on the vaccine for the last several months and hadn't thought about, hey, this is the data and science we need to prioritize to get the vaccine approved, but so that it is properly administered and the implementation goes well, this You know, these are the next phases of study that are going to be really important to prioritize and communicate. Like, there's none of that happening. And it just goes to show over and over and over again with this pandemic, we see our leading scientists either falling behind or falling behind in how they communicate what is happening.
1: Right. And I think the important point there is that these are the leading scientists, not as in these are the top scientists, which they are, but they're also leaders, right? When you're right. the head of the CDC, you are a leader. You're not just a scientist. When you are the head of the you know, National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, as Fauci is, you are a leader. You're not just a scientist. So you need to take responsibility. If you're going on television to communicate to the public, then you need to take responsibility for that communication, for that communication being what people need to know to take action in their lives. That's the whole point.
0: And for everyone else who isn't vaccinated to know how to interact with these people. Yeah. like. It's not just these 20 million Americans. It's like these the friends of the 20 million yep. Americans, the co-workers, the family members. There's so many components. And so... Again, I don't... I'm not trying to, like, drag Walensky and saying, like, she does not are doing a good job. You know, maybe they're actively working on it, but they're not communicating well. No. And I think it's really important that Chuck Todd and the other Sunday show hosts and all the other journalists note what isn't being asked or are asking it. And they note what the non-answers are. And if they say, we're looking into it, we hope to have an answer soon. Like, OK, when should we have that answer? Is it by March? Is it by April 1st? Like... When will you have that information? And we didn't really see that follow-up here in this instance. It would have been great if we could. But sometimes I feel like by asking all the right questions, even if there are no answers, we at least get the benefit of knowing where the gaps are.
1: And what is the freaking plan? I mean, people have been asking since before these vaccines came out, once you get the vaccine, does it mean you can take the mask off, right? I mean, that's a basic question. If you are administering a vaccine to anybody on the street that might be the number one question they have when am i safe when can i take this thing off and they just dance around that question and you understand why right like from a public health perspective if you're a business it's very difficult to enforce masking when people could just lie and say oh well i got the vaccine so i don't need the mask right i mean but if, it- you, if you make it universal then it's easier but at some point we're going to reach critical mass and people are going to want to, you know, if we're, if we're being guided by the science, is there a scientific reason for someone to put the mask to have the mask on right now? But like,
0: okay, I, I understand where you are coming from, but like a very real example is all healthcare workers or all, healthcare workers have been eligible for the vaccine for several weeks. Can they go? Can they be near their coworkers unmasked and then go home to their family and to their children? Like, we don't know, and it's not like it's only this situation only comes up or only will come up in the next few months as more people get vaccinated. It's an active unknown that's only going to get worse. And like I see people who are traveling now who are vaccinated. Like I don't I don't hear anything from the CDC saying like as long as you take the necessary precautions you should be fine. I don't like there's so many things that like People are hoping we're safe, but we haven't actually gotten confirmation on. And it seems like we're heading in that direction. But like there were so many glaring information gaps as the pandemic broke out during the Trump administration that media and Americans were rightly aggrieved by. When there is information gaps a year in, it is completely unacceptable because everyone knew we would be here. Yeah. Right. And that's the part that is just like makes me very irate and makes me feel like we deserve better. And these public health officials, these public health leaders need to understand what our expectations are. We need to have a high expectations so they can meet them. And when they don't, we can call them out. Exactly. But Brendan, you have more coronavirus thoughts.
1: Absolutely. So, in my journalism section, we're moving on to journalism, points at the point in journalism worth discussing that I saw, and that is related to CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. And, you know, she's new in her position. The Biden administration, as of today, is still not even one month old yet, but there's a lot of work to be done, and there's a lot of pressing questions. One of the top questions out there is. What's going on with schools right now? When can schools reopen? Our massive surge during the holiday season is in decline. It hasn't completely dissipated, but it is in great decline. And people are climbing the walls in their households. You know, women have left the workforce to take care of children. As you noted, Naomi, it's like, why haven't men?
0: Yeah, men have no problems making their wives leave the workforce, apparently.
1: Yeah, Yeah. But this question about schools is reaching a crescendo. And on State of the Union, Jake Tapper basically dedicated his entire interview with Director Wilensky on this topic. And I just want to, since we're going to talk about wilensky a bit, I want to talk a little bit about her background so we get an idea of who she is. She is a medical doctor. She specialized in internal medicine, and she is fellowship trained in infectious diseases. She spent a lot of time working on HIV and AIDS, and she taught at ultimately became a full professor at harvard university and during the pandemic obviously before she became cdc director she was deeply engaged in the covid 19 pandemic so jake tapper was just relentless in trying to understand why schools are not open now and what the data says about it and he just goes Again and again and again at this topic. It was an absolute, really the best interview I saw this week. And it's interesting because State of the Union, if you recall, got a 10 out of 10 last week. By Brennan Seidel. By me. I don't give (laughs) 10s. So take a listen to Jake Tapper's first question, one of his first questions about this topic and the way he phrases it, which is really important.
4: So the CDC guidelines suggest... Schools could opt not to reopen in-person classes if they're in a red zone with the high community spread that you just referred to. Uh, According to our analysis of federal data, that includes 99% of American children. Um, But you have said, quote, there's very little transmission happening in the schools. CDC researchers just wrote in JAMA that, quote, there's been little evidence that schools have contributed meaningfully to increased community transmission. So, Why give schools that opt not to open up?
6: It's a really great question. In that red zone that you're referring to, and in fact, yes, many of our uh, current counties are in that red zone, although our numbers continue to decline. But in that red zone, we advocate for hybrid elementary school um, because we believe those K to five kids are A, transmitting less, and B, um, really essential to have back in the classroom. Um, And if you're in middle school or high school, we would advocate for virtual learning for that group or if you're able to do six feet of strict six feet of distancing in those classrooms to open remotely in a hybrid uh, way,
4: but President Biden has promised to always follow the science. Can you put to, can you point to any scientific reasons for students in the United States not to return to in-person classes tomorrow, as long as schools are taking the five steps that we refer to? earlier, masking, uh, cl- cleansing, et cetera. Wh- why not open the schools right now?
6: You know, I think if you look at what's, as you noted, there's 90% of, of um, communities with this high rate of transmission going on right now. And we, we really don't want to bring community disease into the classroom. We also know that um, mask breaching is among the reasons that uh, we have transmission. Well, I
4: don't, but what's the science? Because you have said... There's, you know, I mean, not just you, but Dr. Fauci. Others have been saying for months that the schools should be open as long as there's masking and and uh, cleansing and uh, social distancing. Everything that we talked about. If a school's doing that, I understand if the if there's a mask violation, that's a problem. But if a school's doing that, I mean, the the damage, as I don't need to tell you, on kids, the isolation, the psychological damage, the the educational loss of a year for many kids, not to mention the thousands of kids who are just slipping through the cracks. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's hard to even calculate. Um, and there are a lot of people out there watching who think, like, I thought the science said we should open the schools as long as we take the safety steps. We're taking the safety steps and we're not opening the schools.
6: Yeah, it's, so there are numerous um, uh, research studies that have demonstrated that if with universal masking and uh, six feet of distancing and, um, you know, de-densification of the classrooms, that it's possible to get schools back safely um, with all of that happening. Ninety-two percent of people in those studies were masked. Um, we have other data that was just published in CDC's MMWR that demonstrate that somewhere around 60 percent of students are reliably masked. Asking. that has to be universal. So we have work to do, especially when the country remains in the red zone of high community transmission. As that transmission comes down, we'll be able to relax some of these measures.
1: So you heard that outstanding follow up from Jake Tapper, where he reminds her that Biden has committed to being someone who makes decisions based on the data. So where is the data saying we can't open schools tomorrow? and we don't really hear a lot of strong, you know, data-driven answers beyond oh, we don't want to bring community disease into the classroom, but she didn't she's not indicating how that disease is spreading. In fact, as he cited in the Journal of America of the American Medical Association, CDC researchers say that there's little evidence that there's increased community transmission from that. So Naomi, as someone who's hearing that for the first time, did you find that, that answer compelling?
0: No, but I think this is also a matter of agency leaders not wanting to contradict the White House. There's kind of been varying reports as to what she has said Walensky should happen with schools versus what the White House has kind of request. I think this is a matter of like message consistency. And I think the question of is the Biden administration following the science and or is the scientist trying to stay in line with what the White House is saying?
1: Interesting. So what you're what you're positing is that the White House has said we are not opening schools and Walensky is having to back that up with kind of like shaky shaky reasoning here yeah
0: my impression from the interviews that i heard on fox news and on this week was and also on meet the press a little bit too but especially um on those other two is that schools sh- could be opening up if, if they made these measures and the white house essentially kind of said she was speaking on like her on a, on her personal behalf and not as like cdc director oh my gosh. and like kind of squashed what she had said so it's a I think this is a reflection of message discipline and message, you know, who who's in charge of that message, essentially.
1: But all that said, as a representative, wh- whatever she believes personally, as a representative of the administration, and the administration has committed to making decisions based on science. Right. And that's the and question. she's, the science she, pro- she is providing here is simply that, yes, we can do it if everyone wears masks, but we have some data that shows that. Only 60% of students are wearing masks, so we can't do it. That seems to be her strongest argument here.
0: I think the weakest part of wolinski's answers in the clips that you're showing is that she's not having it be very data-driven. She's not saying, listen, in urban schools, 40% are experiencing this, and that is why it is a challenge to completely open up. And overall, all schools, you know, are are trying to do X, Y, Z things. And if we can do at least two of those, then we're probably safer in opening up. What I saw in the interviews with, that I saw Director Walensky, is that Yes, the schools have to be kind of doing these mitigating factors, but it also really depends on the state of the community, which I didn't really hear quite that much in the answers you've shown, but they're just... No, know. no,
1: no, no. She gets there. So at the end, Jake Tapper moves on to something else. And I felt like he had kind of like given up on this on this whole line of questioning, even though I still felt that Walensky hadn't provided a really solid answer. But he wraps up the interview in something that in a way that I haven't really heard other Sunday hosts wrap up their interviews before, where he just kind of said how he felt at the end of the interview. Take a listen.
4: I have to say, I feel a little dispirited uh, after this conversation because I had high hopes that schools would be able to resume in-person learning uh, because so many scientists and health officials, uh, including you and Dr. Fauci and others, had been talking about The science supports opening the schools as much as possible. I know that a lot of teachers are very concerned, and I know that teachers' unions uh, have been pushing back on this. But it sounds to me like you're asking for 100 percent mass compliance and a number of measures that we're never going to be able to achieve. uh, And that makes me feel like, boy, I don't know if the schools are ever going to open until everybody's vaccinated.
6: uh, There's literature out that suggests that over 90% of people, when they're masked, you can have safe opening of schools. What I will say is this is directly related to how much disease is in the community. Um, We have more flexibility in opening schools as our disease rates come down. So I would say this is everybody's responsibility to do their part in the community to get disease rates down so we can get our schools
1: opened. So there she is talking about those disease rates. And yet there is no science that she has cited indicating that high disease rates in the community means that there is greater transmission within the schools and the schools become vectors for transmission. That is, She's not connecting those dots.
0: I believe that is the case, but you're right that she's not making, she's not describing that very
1: explicitly at all. So Jake Tapper was all about, why aren't these schools opening? Why aren't you following your own stated principle of data-driven decision-making? On the other side of that was Margaret Brennan. So Margaret Brennan interviewed Director Wilinski as well, but her perspective was completely the opposite. Her perspective was really, should you open these schools when things are so dangerous?
7: You heard the British Prime Minister give himself a little bit of wiggle room there on committing to reopening schools in his country next month, particularly given this new research on B117, that highly contagious strain that now is found to have higher hospitalization and death risk associated with it. Should areas of this country where there is B117 still have in person classes?
6: There are over a thousand B117 cases that we have documented in this country um, in over 30, in 39 states. Um, we know now that or we estimate now that about 4% of disease in this country is related to B117, and we have projections that it may be the dominant strain by the end of March. That said, the amount of disease in school is very much related to the amount of disease that's in the community.
7: But you said on Friday at a press conference that 90% of the country's schools are in areas with high levels of transmission. Don't those schools risk becoming vectors of transmission?
6: So what we know from the from the literature, from the scientific literature, is that most disease transmission does not happen in the walls of the school. It comes in from the community. There's very limited um, transmission between students, between students and staff, um, really mostly between staff to staff when there are breaches in mask wearing. So what we're really advocating for now is um, working to get our in, especially in the in the high areas of transmission, the red zones you just talked about, getting our K five kids back in a hybrid mode with universal mask wearing and six feet of distancing.
1: So here it's like the opposite. It's like bizarro world, right? The host is saying it seems dangerous and it's going to be a, you know, a method of transmission. And you have director Walensky saying, well, actually the data says that there's limited transmission between students and, you know, we can open up in these different ways. It's just, it's so crazy. Such a night and day look at the story based on just where the the host happens to be and and what they think the risks are. Well, it's
0: where they're putting their scrutiny, Right, right? Right. And it's interesting because on, and I'm not trying to make your segment go forever, Brendan, but on Fox News Sunday, Chris Wallace also interviewed Walensky. And I might, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something to the effect of he plays a clip of Jen Psaki, who is the Biden administration press secretary. And she makes a claim or some promise in, in a news conference or daily briefing that the Biden administration is trying to, and I might be messing up some of the details, but the majority of schools will open at least one day a week by, I don't know, like April 1st or April 15th, like just a few weeks away. The majority of schools will have in-person learning at least one day a week.
1: She makes that commitment right. in a briefing.
0: Yeah, Gensaki. And <laughs> Chris Wallace says 61% of schools are already doing that. Uh. Like, why are they claiming a benchmark that we already are at, yeah, yeah. right like you're kind of setting the bar pretty low <laughs> like if you're agreeing to do something that you can already prove we do
1: wow good for him
0: yeah and so it was again i i can't remember exactly what wolinski's response was it i mean it was a hard answer but it goes to show that in this one part of this pandemic you know schools opening vaccines teacher hesitancy to be in the classroom or to be on camp. Like this one part of the pandemic can still be explored in a variety of different ways. And so it's important to kind of like have very active critical thinking skills on because you could be missing a whole facet of of education in America right now if you're only looking at like one journalist or only one news source.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I just, I thought it was very interesting from a journalistic standpoint, what we saw between these two different hosts. And I thought Tapper did an excellent job in really trying to hold this administration accountable for their stated directness. You know, I mean, this is a really big deal. I mean, Biden said, look, Trump and their team did not seem to be following the science. I will always follow the science. And in something as important as schools, that has one of the deepest impacts on our way of life, on the lives of so many families. To not be clear in your science and your decision-making on that is, is really, really a huge breach of trust. And what you mentioned there about the Jen Psaki thing just makes me feel that like this administration is, you know, they're clearly working hard. They're trying to put people out there to talk. But it really, really kind of feels like they don't have all their facts together. They don't have their story together. They don't have their work and their plans together quite yet.
0: Right. And without good questions, it's easy to miss the fact that all the plans and all the facts are not in place. And to
1: just applaud them for not actively trying to lie the way the past administration did.
0: I mean, maybe, but like...
1: (laughs) Like, it's easy to want, if you're not paying attention, to just say, oh, look, they're so much better than Trump. Right. That's what I was trying to say.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying. Okay, yeah, then I agree.
1: (laughs) And just as we button this up, I want to point out that last week we had lots of criticism for Fauci for his lack of clear messaging in the pandemic. Like, (laughs) come on, people, get it together. (laughs)
0: We got like a tweet or an email or some, some listener was just <laughs> talking about how surprised they were of how much, how deep our criticism continue, even with the new administration. And it's like, welcome to our world. We have criticisms and critiques for everyone. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> we don't care what's next to your name. We really don't. Be better. <laughs> you know, D or R is what I'm trying to say. I know. Yeah. They should both be better. Yeah. Yeah. Naomi, what in politics stood out to you?
0: Okay, so I wanted to talk about something that has kind of taken a backseat a little bit in the last year or so. We used to talk about panels a lot more when we only, if we have any OG listeners, we used to only cover four shows. And we talked about panelists and interesting comments or noteworthy comments or asinine comments yeah, we did. A lot more often.
1: Well, there also used to be a lot more panels back
0: That's then.
8: That's true. That's
0: <laughs> true. There's a lot of panels and we have another show with Fox News Sunday. And so the panels often just, we don't have time to discuss them that much. But I wanted to talk. <laughs> Your face is very funny.
1: It's because I wanted to say something else, but I want you to keep going. Go okay. ahead.
0: So I wanted to talk about the meet the press panel for my moment in politics. And it just was such a good example of when you have a good guest, like good guests for the panel, when you invite good panelists, when you're exploring a topic that is not being explored enough. And when you have a moderator who like genuinely wants a good, engaging conversation, the panels can actually be gold, despite what I always see on This Week, which was absolute trash, despite what I saw on Fox News Sunday, which I'm always sleeping by the time they get to the panel. The panel on Meet the Press was chef's kiss so good, and what they focused on was the future of the Republican Party, and specifically, they put a lot of their attention on none other than Mitch McConnell, who is kind of very influential in the Senate and within Republicans and the future of Republican Party. But we barely ever, ever, ever talk about Mitch McConnell's role.
1: Yeah. And that's one of our abiding frustrations with the Sunday show. People are just like,
0: what's going to happen? It's like, just ask Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Hello. Anyway, so...
1: Who I, never shows up on who the Who never shows, shows up, ever. never sends
0: anybody what, you know. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. But like well, people might, act like they have to, you know, use a, a crystal ball. And it's like, just follow and talk about McConnell so people understand the trajectory of the party potentially or, or the likely trajectory. Anyway, I want to get back to the panel because it was so good. And I don't want to rant about McConnell. Oh. I mean, they're oh, going to. Really? Well, they're going <laughs> to do it so much better. So there were four guests on the panel. There was NBC Capitol Hill correspondent Casey Hunt. There was former Democratic senator from Missouri, Claire McCaskill. She's kind of like the token, like old school establishment Democrat voice. Oftentimes the former Republican congressman of Florida, Carlos Corbello. He lost, I believe in the 2018 midterms because he wasn't Trumpian enough. And Audie Cornish, the host of NPR, All Things Considered, who has literally the most soothing voice (laughs) I have ever heard. And they each kind of shared some reflections about the state of the Republican Party after the acquittal of President Trump. And what stood out to me is, this is an example when I, of where I found value from literally everyone. But you'll hear how each of them share pretty interesting perspectives, even if you don't agree with it completely, it's noteworthy to hear. And a lot of what these panels are going to be talking about is McConnell's famous speech after the acquittal. So after he voted to acquit President Trump, he, he McConnell, gave a scathing rebuke of the, the former president, pretty much saying he's practically and morally responsible for the insurrection, pretty much inviting criminal investigations and potential charges and making the path for the Republican Party to move on without President Trump.
1: And in that speech, he said, basically, the only reason he voted to acquit was because he doesn't believe it's constitutional to try a president after they are out of office.
0: Yeah. He also didn't want to do the impeachment while President Trump was in office. That's a whole,
1: Which he had an opportunity to make happen and did not.
0: Asterisk, 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 every time that man speaks. But anyway, let's hear what the panelists had to say.
1: And to begin, I think you said we're going to hear from former Republican Congressman Corbello.
2: Correct. I think it was a bad day for Donald Trump. This was the most bipartisan impeachment and conviction process in history. And Senator McConnell really laid it out plainly and simply again yesterday after the vote. And I think uh, what he did is so important. You can debate uh, why or not, uh, why he decided to vote the way he did. Uh, Obviously, he put forward an argument that uh, other constitutional scholars agree with, but... After that vote, he did the most important thing that anyone who wants to combat Trumpism can do, which is to express simple truths, to make sure the American people, and specifically Republicans, know who Donald Trump is, what he did, and how he provoked the worst attack on our democracy and our history.
9: And here's Casey Hunt. And I'm interested to see if there's a new era between the two of them in the wake of that speech behind the scenes from Mitch McConnell. It's very clear that he put power ahead of everything else in that uh, decision, series of decisions he made yesterday. He wanted to retain his power as the Senate minority leader, and he wouldn't have been able to do that if he had voted to convict Donald Trump. But he also recognizes that Republicans and Larry Hogan, uh, Governor Hogan, just said the same thing to you. Republicans are not going to be able to win elections if they do not repudiate Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell knows that, and it's why he said what he said. And he repeated it in an interview right after uh, he took this
0: vote. He said, I care about electability, and that's it. And take a listen to what former Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill had to say.
5: He didn't hesitate a moment. I not only represent Kentucky, he told me, I represent the nation and there are times you follow and times when you lead. Claire McCaskill, there were you and I were on the air together a couple times yesterday and and, and you were defending Mitch McConnell here a little bit um, during the back and forth. Where are you on on, on the genuineness of his remarks?
7: Well, uh, let's be clear. One thing that he did do yesterday he made sure that there is a real war within the Republican Party because he gave a lock him up speech, Chuck. Yeah, He said, lock him up. He gave an invitation for criminal prosecution to the nation's prosecutors. Now, that is, and he's the highest ranking Republican in the country. Yep. Um, that, so uh, What? yesterday was a bad day for Donald Trump, but it was a worse day for the Republican Party. So why did he do that? Um, he can't stand Donald Trump. He thinks Donald Trump cost him the majority. But also, he has to worry about donors who write seven-figure checks, who are totally put off by Donald Trump at this point. And frankly, even if he voted to convict, he knew the majority of his caucus was not going to follow him. And that would expose a real weakness in terms of his leadership.
0: And lastly, we're going to hear from Audie Cornish. Audie, big
5: picture, though, did we give a permission slip to our politics to be more violent by not holding anybody accountable for these actions yet?
9: I'm not entirely sure who you mean by we. I mean, when I you're say talking we, about the... the Senate and the yeah. Republican Party. Yeah. Um, you know, so far, essentially, the only person who has uh, the only people who have sanctioned uh, Trump in any way uh, is Silicon Valley right um, the Justice Department of course is plowing ahead with investigations opened up some 200 cases of people who were involved in the insurrection um, NPR's investigation shows um, that a, a percentage of those people cited Trump specifically uh, in their kind of motivations or suggestions about why they were doing what they were doing this conversation isn't over um, but I, I think it sounds like on this panel I'm the person who is a little more pessimistic about um, (laughs) what this means going forward for the Republican Party. I did not see some opening to the door of a a grand revitalization or some change or Trump saying goodbye. Um, What I see is a party that is clearly still in his thrall, lawmakers who are still fearful of him. And and what that what that means going forward is quite serious.
5: Adi, I see the glasses as, as as half empty as you do.
0: So really, really interesting perspectives. And I think the reason I kind of wanted to show all four of these is that they play off of each other and kind of expand on each other's different ideas or completely contradict or challenge the other. But at no point did it feel hostile. At no point did it feel like such and so and so is an idiot. I can't believe they're sitting here at the table with me. That's how this week feels all the time. They each had some level of analysis and reflection of what is going on in the Republican Party, what the motivations and goals are that Mitch McConnell would like the Republican Party to get to. And they all had validity. Like, when's the last time every panelist felt valid? I don't even remember.
1: Like they had a valid point they were making. Right, right because I think the other important point that you're kind of like alluding to is that nobody there was was putting on the badge of the republican party like we've seen you know other panelists do in the past like chris christie or hugh hewitt and saying well i'll tell you you know in 1844 this person you know there there was a famous baseball player and and that I'll was definitely
0: someone was doing that on Fox News Sunday today for <laughs> literally for sure.
1: And then and then saying like, you know, that the Democrats have shown they are craven. All they care about is power. This has been a witch hunt like any other witch hunt, you know, and it's like they're not posturing for their side. Right. They're genuinely trying to understand what is going on right now.
0: And to give people a sense of what they think is going on. Yeah. Right. And so they're trying to be clear and illustrative of what they're seeing. And I just thought, like, I hadn't really thought about the whole Mitch McConnell's trying to keep his leadership position by acquitting President Trump. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that whole angle. (laughs) I thought Audie Cornish gave a really good answer questioning this assumption that Republicans have drastically changed. And I think accurately... Vocalize the skepticism that a lot of people in this country have where it's like the Republican Party hasn't done anything to repudiate Trump. This is just another example of that. And I'll believe the repudiation when I see it. And again, I, I just found each perspective so valuable in trying to picture and imagine what's going to happen next within the Republican Party.
1: This conversation really reminded me of Chuck Todd's Chuck Toddcast podcast. Right. Where he invites folks like this on and they have a deep dive discussion on one topic and that's that's kind of what this felt like here and there's you know it was actually really really nice to see one answer i want to get from the mcconnell situation where he voted one way and then you know repudiated trump in every possible measure afterwards i want to know and it's something i've been calling for for a long time is mitch mcconnell you are a person steeped in power all you know he sees like Neo in the Matrix, you know, lines in power, like everything is power (laughs) to him. He sees in power vision. So, what I want to know is, did he try to use, if he felt the way he seems to feel, because he's done now two speeches like this where he's like repudiating Trump for what happened here. And people who worked with him say, you know, he's washed his hands from Trump with Trump and he's never going to talk to him again, right? If he feels that way, has he used his power? among his caucus, to try to push people. That's
0: what I want to know. Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, in the clip that, in the question that Chuck Todd asks Claire McCaskill, you know, supposedly McConnell says there are times, he doesn't just represent Kentucky, he represents the country, and sometimes you have to lead, right? But Casey Hunt makes the really important point that at no point was Mitch McConnell going to not be voting with the majority of Republicans. Like, that's just not how he... That's not how you maintain power, and that's not how you control power. And he didn't have the majority of the Republicans wanting to convict, so he wasn't going to.
1: Right, but my question is, did he take the pulse of them, or did he have, you know, individual meetings with each one of them saying, like, look, I'm going to lay it out for you. Trump is a disaster for our party and he did terrible things, and he is guilty, and I want you to vote guilty. Like, did he do that? And it doesn't sound like he did. It sounds like he's like, this is a vote of conscience, blah, 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 blah.
0: I mean, we don't know. I mean, he's... Well, he said
1: that it's a vote of conscience. But I, I, what I want to know is what really happened backstage.
0: Yeah, I'm imagining he whipped the
1: votes. You think to, he did?
0: Well, I or tried to, and mm. then was able to realize like, oh, I don't have it. Interesting. But. I mean, I don't believe anybody who says it's a vote of conscience. Everyone's whipped for every vote that matters.
1: (laughs) That's my theory. Someone made the interesting point is what if he had given the speech the day before?
0: He wouldn't because he knew people weren't going to convict.
1: Yeah, I have no words.
0: Anyway, good job, Meet the Press, for having a panel that I'm still, still thinking about. Hasn't happened in a very, very, very long time.
1: One of the points, the point that I was going to make early on, when you were talking about the panels and why we don't cover them as much. One reason we stopped talking about them as much as we do as well is that it seemed like we had the same complaints yes. week after week after week. And we just said, you know, this is getting- it's kind only of,
0: so many times I can roll my eyes at Daniel
1: Pletka. It's getting boring. Yeah, haven't seen her for a while.
0: Hey, let's not- Let's
1: not bring her back. Yeah.
0: Brendan, what is your moment in politics
1: that stood out to you? Well, it's actually very similar. In the same way that you said you didn't, you weren't like aware of how Mitch McConnell voted the way he did possibly to keep his leadership position and he might not have been leader McConnell if he had voted his conscience in this situation. Well, same thing happened for me on State of the Union when I was hearing from one of the impeachment managers talking about why they chose not to call for witnesses after hours before saying they wanted to call for witnesses. This is, you know, seemed very head scratching. We mentioned it earlier. And I personally thought like, why don't we have the witnesses? Seems, you know, certainly as we've heard from a lot of journalists, and I think you and I agree, like we're all for more information and more data and more voices. That's what we're all about, as a lot of journalists are. And so it is kind of odd when it seems like that is being closed to debate and closed to further exploration. And so Jake Tapper had the same sort of questions for impeachment manager Stacey Plaskett. She is a member of the House of Representatives. She is a Democrat. She also used to be a Republican, which is interesting. But she is a non-voting member because she represents the Virgin Islands. So she can sit on committees. She can introduce legislation, but she can't vote on that legislation
0: yeah which is absolute garbage but
1: other non-voting members include the delegate from the district of columbia and the resident commissioner of puerto rico and guam yeah well i'm just saying other i'm not saying all of them right right right, right.
0: um also congresswoman plaskett had incredible outfits
1: all throughout Mm. the impeachment so here's jake tapper's question about what's going on here and the answer i found Very illuminating.
4: Uh, You and your fellow House impeachment managers wanted to call Republican Congresswoman Herrera Butler from Washington State as a witness Mm -hmm. to describe Kevin McCarthy's call with Trump, in which the president effectively sided with the terrorists while the attack was going on. Take a listen. This is what she told a a town hall. He said,
7: well, Kevin, these aren't my people. You know, these these are Antifa. And Kevin responded and said, no, they're your people. You need to call him off. And the president's response to Kevin, to me, was chilling. He said, well, Kevin, I guess they're just more upset about the election theft uh,
6: you know, than you are.
4: I mean, siding with the terrorists while they were attacking the Capitol. You right. also wanted to subpoena her notes of that call. Um, but ultimately, Democrats did neither of those things and accepted the public statement she'd made. Why did you back down?
8: I think we didn't back down. I think what we did was we got what we wanted, which was her statement which was what she said and had to put into the record and being able to say it on the record out loud so that others would hear. Just so the American public is aware, witnesses in a Senate hearing do not come and stand before the senators and make any statements. It's a deposition. It's videotaped. And that is brought before the Senate. So I know that people are feeling a lot of angst and believe that maybe if we had this, the senators would have done what we wanted. But listen, we didn't need more witnesses. We needed more senators with spines. As you heard from Mitch McConnell, his his closing statement was what we said. He agreed with us. They all agreed. They just decided that they wanted to give him a walk and they found a technicality that they created to do so.
1: So there's that answer that I found pretty eye-opening. You know, they go back and forth further and she basically says, and I think we heard from, Senator Chris Coons as well that it was this was their high water mark. They had a sense that this was the most number of Republican senators they were going to get and they they felt like if they went any further and they actually heard from people that if they went any further they would start losing people including possibly some Democrats as well. So the fact that they were able to get that one particular piece of information into the record seemed to be all they really really wanted and needed and felt like was, was required at that moment. So that was kind of eye-opening to me because I hadn't really seen it from that perspective.
0: Yeah, Jamie Raskin was on Meet the Press and it said something quite similar as well. Yeah. Raskin being the head impeachment manager.
1: I guess the one thing that kind of was a little frustrating was that this was, as you mentioned, Raskin was asked about it. Plaskett was asked about it. Coons was asked about it. It became sort of the du jour question When the real topic of conversation should have probably been focused on the conduct of Trump.
0: So just to close out the show, my moment in journalism is the interview with Lindsey Graham, senator, Republican senator from South Carolina, who was on Fox News Sunday. Lindsey Graham has been one of the most prominent supporters of President Trump. There was a lot of comments that he made that I was quite surprised by. I hadn't (laughs) I hadn't seen, to be honest, many Republicans who are just like, finally, let's go bigger on Trump now that the impeachment is over, which is pretty much what Lindsey Graham said. What surprised me was that Chris Wallace essentially would let him go on his like extended soliloquies. We're running out of time, so I don't really have quite the the time to kind of go through those the two clips that I wanted to show you from that interview. But if you heard the Sunday. Fox News Sunday and heard that interview with Lindsey Graham. You might have been surprised by just kind of the passive aggressive approach that Chris Wallace had in that interview with Lindsey Graham. And I just I'm kind of over them like people know what type of interview they're going to have if they're going to be interviewing Lindsey Graham and there's going to be questions about President Trump. I'm I was really disappointed just by
1: the the booking.
0: The booking, but also like Chris Wallace's actual execution of that interview, I thought, was really lacking.
1: So can you give us a little more insight? Like, what do you mean by passive aggressive?
0: Chris Wallace would ask a solid follow up, but he would do it in after Lindsey Graham spoke for like two minutes on his like insane Trump, Trumpian defense.
1: So he was giving him a lot of airtime?
0: Yeah, a lot of airtime. And there wasn't enough repudiation, enough pushback, enough... And not even repudiation because Chris Wallace is a journalist and he would say, maybe that's not my role. But there wasn't enough resistance within the interview of what Lindsey Graham was saying. He was given airtime and credibility with that airtime.
1: Very disappointing to hear that Chris Wallace didn't engage.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you remember, like, there was Chris Wallace can give really good interviews. I'm thinking specifically that interview with Stephen Miller around immigration. Remember how intense that was? Like, Chris Wallace is can be a very, very strong interviewer. And so this is a conscious choice. It's not like he missed the mark. It's a choice to let Lindsey Graham do this.
1: Yeah, that's disappointing. All right, Naomi. Well, I guess that takes us to show ratings. Where would you rate Fox News Sunday then?
0: I think I would rate it a five. There was a really good interview with the CDC director, Wolinsky. I thought the interview with... Amy Klobuchar was actually really well done.
1: Mm, interesting. Uh,
0: I thought Klobuchar did a better job than Chris Wallace. But between the panel, that joke of a Power Player of the Week, and also the Lindsey Graham interview, I had a lot of a lot of serious issues with that show today. How about you? What'd you think of Face the Nation?
1: I <sighs> Face the Nation didn't really do it for me this week. I, as we mentioned, and I as I mentioned in great detail. I wasn't really wowed by her interview with the CDC director. I felt like she missed some real opportunities to, to go deeper into areas of schooling or, or even other areas. I feel like, once again, Face the Nation has tried to pack so much into their episodes that things get kind of lost and there doesn't seem to be a lot of, you know, a strong thread running through it. And the thread that is sometimes misses key, key things. So I don't know. I think I'd probably give it a seven. It was fine. But it wasn't super great. And I'm still, I'm starting to get a little frustrated that Margaret Brennan doesn't ask more pointed questions to Scott Gottlieb when he's on. Because although I've been a huge fan of the insight that Gottlieb has been providing for basically the past year, Gottlieb himself is in a position of power and leadership at Pfizer. And when we have a lack of transparency into how these vaccines are being manufactured and deployed, it'd be really helpful to ask some pointed questions to someone who's able to answer that directly from the manufacturer's position. So that's Face the Nation. Naomi, what did you think of Meet the Press? It seemed like it was pretty high on your list.
0: Yeah, I think I would give Meet the Press a nine. It was a very solid episode. Wow,
1: very nice.
0: Yes, good job to the Meet the Press team. And I think for this week, I'd give it a three- It was not good. And you mentioned something, Brendan, and I can't remember the exact language, but you just said something around like a through line of, I think.
1: Yeah, like a thread running through Face the Nation. This
0: week doesn't believe in threads. It's just, let's smash up a bunch of interviews together and hope it's a decent 45 minutes. And then
1: we'll have a big panel with our same people.
0: Yeah, who just scream at each other. At no point do I feel like George Stephanopoulos has a burning question that he's exploring throughout his interviews. It it doesn't feel cohesive. It doesn't, there. there's no through line. That's one of my overall frustrations with the show of this week, but it definitely felt relevant today. Brendan, and last one, State of the Union.
1: Once again, State of the Union did an excellent job, I felt. Jake Tapper also had a strong closing this week where he looked at kind of the new... Scandal coming out of the state of New York, where Governor Cuomo seems to have purposefully underreported deaths that were taking place in nursing homes after making a controversial move to send COVID patients to nursing homes that ultimately ended up infecting other patients. So State of the Union did, once again, an excellent, excellent job. I've highlighted a lot of key points throughout the episode that I thought, Just went really, really well. So I think I'd probably give it a nine once again. A really high, high rating this week. Not quite the 10 of last week, but really high. Way to go State of the Union, right on trend. So Naomi, today's dialogue challenge. Is there anything worth talking about now that the impeachment is over?
0: I mean, I think my dialogue challenge would be, what are some questions that you have noticed have been missing? Yes. I'm like Carmen Sandiego up in here trying to find all my missing questions.
1: Did you see the video that was going around the internet of a not young, but younger Joe Biden from like the year 1990 or 92 calling in as a special guest to the show, which I guess there was a show of Carmen Sandiego. And uh, I I don't know what the hell he was doing. He wouldn't really even mention Carmen Sandiego, but it it was a Joe Biden, Carmen Sandiego. Of course there is. Connection.
0: Carbon San Diego knows everyone, so makes sense. I just to
1: remember me. the game. But yes, questions that have been missing.
0: SOS. Let's find them.
1: Yeah. Could be related to public policy, could be related to personal relationships. Could be
0: anything. Yeah. Go find me. Well, if you have any missing questions for us, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can find me on Twitter at Soto Naomi underscore.
1: You can follow me at Beast title and you can follow the show at Polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk with you next week.
0: We're not missing. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye.